folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of The Art, The Secret History of Cywar, Conspiratainment, and the Shattering of Reality, Book One. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visaview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, .blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at The Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, The Farm Podcast.store. And please consider signing up for The Farm's Patreon. On the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Content. The upper tier, you get that in addition to access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meetings, my dispatches from my various journeys across the United States and all the weird hotspots that I hit up, State of the Unions, where you get my musings on the geopolitical state of the world, and so much more. It's a lot of content, folks, so please consider checking that out. Okay, we've got two guests with us here. One is making a maiden appearance on the farm. He has been a resident of the mysterious Catalina Island for nearly 30 years now. He is a filmmaker and author. As to the former, he has contributed to the award-winning documentary Wings Across the Channel, which explores Catalina's golden age of seaplanes. Elsewhere, he is a freelance writer to the newspaper The Catalina Islander and the author of The Great Mysterious Island Catalina, The Strange Side of Catalina, which I recommend all you guys pick up a copy of. Folks, I give you guys the great Jim Watson. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here today, sir. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is great. And just in case... Always looking for an opportunity to talk about the island. It is fantastic and endlessly intriguing. And just in case you guys are wondering, this is not the Jim Watson from the Philippines behind QAnon. Just wanted to clarify that right <laughs> off the bat. You sure about that? You sure about that? Reasonably certain. I've at least seen pictures of this Jim Watson, and he's does not uh, he does not have the pregnant looking breasts that the Jim Watson of the Philippines have. So okay, no, I don't. All right. Also joining us here is Repeater. He has worked and lived in Hollywood for over 20 years in music, film, and television. He's currently a consultant. Uh, he's currently consulting and developing work for different networks and production companies on topics of UFOs, the paranormal, and more. He has been involved with projects by Steven Spielberg, J.J. Abrams, and many others. Folks, I give you guys David H. Altman. Thank you for joining Hello. us. Hello. Thanks for having me back. I'm surprised you actually wanted me back. <laughs> that was actually very well received. So the last time Dave was here, we did a bit of an exploration into Catalina Island's peculiar brand of high weirdness. And during that appearance, he brought to my attention Jim's wonderful book. Upon reading that work, I realized we had barely scratched the surface of Catalina's strange history. Dave was able to put me in contact with Jim, who graciously agreed to join us for another deep dive into Mysterious Catalina, and here we are. We're going to revisit a few points from the previous discussion, such as Catalina's story, Giant Skeletons, and its mind-boggling green door. 
But we're going to go even further this time around. Everything from the island's mysterious 1915 fire to the Toyon Bay seance and hollow earth musings is up for consideration. We're going to consider Catalina's curious connection to last summer's Titan incident and possibly the island's most mysterious resident and how he connects to the this place to the Philadelphia experiment. And that'll be a good note to bring up one of Dave's um, recent discoveries, which would be the bizarre incident in the Miami Mall with the, what, 10, 12 foot tall alien or something to that effect. So we've got a lot of goodies in store for you guys. It's going to be quite an outing. So on that note, let us start the show. <laughs> So we are going to start from the very beginning. Jim, what can you tell us about the indigenous civilization that inhabited Catalina before the colonists? And what was the island's status as a holy site to them? Yeah, the the Tongva people were and still are um, the indigenous peoples uh, who have inhabited Catalina Island. There's a small number of them still here on the island. And uh, uh, they are part of the larger group of Tongva, which inhabit um, the the Los Angeles area at the time of European contact, uh, which the first time was 1542, uh, Juan Cabrillo. uh, They inhabited all of the Los Angeles basin, basically. And it's interesting that millions of people live in the Los Angeles area and precious few can actually name the name of the peoples that live there. Well, the the Tongva that lived on the island, they were an extension of that group, spoke uh, the same language, did quite a bit of trading with the uh, mainland Tongva. They would cross the channel in their plank canoes called Tiots. And uh, so there was a lot of trade uh, communication between the two. And just like today, um, even back then, the the island had kind of a spiritual side to it. A, uh, there was something special about this place. The, the Tongva that lived out here were kind of considered, you know, a little cut above um, the mainland people. I'm not saying it's like that now, but uh, um, but uh, there were there were annual gatherings, for example, or, or regular gatherings, uh, pilgrimage pilgrimages, if you will, from um, mainland Tongva coming out to the island, um, and there was. Uh, we have lots of historical accounts of what was considered a temple out here. And um, it really wasn't um, a temple in the sense of something like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know, or, or Disneyland or something like that. But it was a huge array of different um, religious uh, totems and burial sites and things like that, various places to, to worship. Um, they worshipped uh, the uh, the uh, god Tenichnich, and um, in fact, um, uh, the 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 first historical account came from a Spanish explorer named uh, Sebastian Vizcano, and he was the second um, uh, second Spanish explorer to come out here after Juan Cabrillo. In fact, it was Vizcano that uh, 
gave the island the name uh, Santa Catalina. So, um, so you got to figure there's uh, back in those days, there was anywhere from about 2000 to 3000 Tongva living on the island um, at that time. And unlike today, you know, today, um, Catalina, the, the population of Catalina Island is almost entirely centered in the town of Avalon, where I am right now. Um, but back in those days, you know, with natural resources scattered around the island, um, those those Native Americans all lived in scattered areas around the island. So this temple area was evidently some kind of a, uh, um, a, a center point for everybody. Uh, in fact, Avalon is kind of interesting. Avalon itself was not one of the major population centers. There's a place called White's Landing and then up at Two Harbors, up at the Isthmus was another large area. Interestingly, the Avalon area, Avalon Canyon was basically a, a large burial site. And in fact, quite frankly, the town of Avalon is built on top of a graveyard. So next time you come out here and you're having fun in the restaurants and bars and all that, just remember you're, you're basically on top of a graveyard and it's, it's never really been excavated. Fortunately, it's one of the few large burial sites of native Americans that was never excavated and, you know, be nice to keep it that way every now and then um, in the years that I've been here, uh, if there's a construction project going on or something like that, it is not uncommon for a backhoe or something to get into one of the burial sites. And all of a sudden they've got human remains in the bucket there. And of course, everything is put on hold right then and there. And um, anthropologists come in and they work the site until they've, they've removed the remains. But anyway, getting back to this big uh, temple, um, like I say, about all we really know about it is from uh, Vizcano's uh, chronicler, a fellow named Torquemada. And when they first approached it, uh, this is straight from his journal, you know, obviously translated into English. Um, right in the middle of it was an idol. And Torquemada said this was an idol that resembled a demon, having horns, no head, a dog at its feet, and many children painted all around it. And um, so kind of creepy there. And I'm not implying that the Tongva believed in Satan or worshiping Satan, but you got to realize to the Spanish, this looked like the devil. So Vizcano himself um, walked right up to the, the idol, painted a cross on it and wrote the word Jesus on, on the skull, which, uh, you know, didn't sit too well with the local Tongva. And to make matters worse, um, the Tonga worshipped uh, the ravens, which we still have plenty out here. They're, they're endemic to the island. And uh, they viewed the ravens as messengers to the god Chinichnich, uh, basically. And the Spanish saw this and being pious uh, Catholic uh, you know, missionaries to a certain extent. What do you think they did? They pulled out their muskets and killed the ravens. So, again, that didn't go over too well with the locals. Um, but um, surprisingly, the rest of their visit went over okay, but it was kind of the start of, of the, uh, the, the demise of most of the Tonga on the island. Like I say, there's a small number of them still here, and it's a vibrant community over, over on the uh, mainland as well. So anyway, that's kind of the, the uh, spiritual end of it. And um, I, there's the chapter in my book that talks about this is called Catalina Stonehenge. 
and the it basically disappeared. Um, we had a uh, uh, so-called archaeologist named uh, Ralph Lynn David. I think you talked about him in in one of the previous episodes that you were in, and even he couldn't find any any signs of it anymore. So it's a mystery, you know. Whatever happened to Catalina's Stonehenge? So, and to this day, um, the island is still considered a very spiritual place it is a mysterious island i like to call it an enchanted island um you feel it uh maybe you had this experience too david you you feel it as soon as you set foot on the island it's different it was a different be it's like the first time you've ever been to africa first time you set foot on africa you feel something you feel a beat you 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 feel a vibe i guess if you will so um that kind of um enchantment still exists out here at, at Catalina. Jim, do you happen to know if uh, the name Avalon was chosen because of the status of the indigenous graveyard there? Of course, in mythology, Avalon was supposedly the mythological uh, burial spot for King Arthur. I was uh, just curious about that. No, I, I don't think it was. The first name for the town was Chateauville, the founding uh, gentleman, uh, George Chateau was the fellow who founded the town and, uh, they first named it Chateauville, but the family quickly realized that that might not be a good idea because it might turn into a brawling drunken sea town and they didn't want their name associated with it. So, um, George Chateau's wife came up with the name, um, Avalon, but that is an interesting point. I, I think I'll look into that, but I, I doubt seriously that that's the, uh, that was the reason. Well, one of the uh, more peculiar subjects to experience a resurgence in the 21st century is the good old Hollow Earth musings. Apparently, there was a Hollow Earth Society based out of Los Angeles, and they had a curious perspective of Catalina back in the 1920s, I believe. Jim, what can you tell us about this? Yes, um, I'm sure most people are familiar with, you know, the Hollow Earth theory. Um, it... Uh, uh, got started back in the 1700s. Um, in fact, one of its first proponents was none other than Sir Edmund uh, Halley or Haley, after which the comet, Haley's Comet, is uh, is named. And um, and it basically posits that the interior of the Earth is, is hollow, of course. And various uh, there's variations on that, that there's an advanced civilization living there. Um, there is an actual sun in there, an actual star in there. Um, and, uh, to this day, uh, yeah, there's been sort of a resurgence. Um, um, the Russians still have a, a lot of, um, to do with investigating for the hollow earth. And yes, back in the 1920s, um, the hollow earth society came out to the island to visit. And the reason they did, the reason that Catalina kind of centered around this idea was because the Hollow Earth Society believed that Catalina might be one of the portals. There might be uh, here on the island one of the portals that goes into the center of the Earth. You know, there was supposed to be uh, several of them around the world, including up uh, up in the Arctic. There's a famous radio transmission. I think it was Robert Byrd, our Arctic explorer, where he's frantically talking they're here they're up in the rock Richard, Richard Bird Richard Bird Richard sorry Bird, Richard Bird and um 
and he's frantically yelling into the radio about seeing a, a huge hole in the ground and there's trees around it and which you know couldn't exist there at that part of the arctic but anyway they came out here um to look for this portal and um i was never able to find there was never any subsequent articles about it, it was one of those little blurbs in the catalina islander back in the 1920s and i don't know if they found anything um maybe the reason there wasn't any other follow-up stories is they disappeared into the portal i really don't know but uh that whole portal theme is is you know kind of an interesting thing out here at catalina because it would explain you know a number of things um i'm sure we'll get into toy on bay here a, a, a little bit later and um um you know, it's it's the old mine, the chapter in my book about the old mines and buried treasures. Um, there's some interesting things. This portal, um, if it exists or if they exist, would explain certain crazy things out here. Um, you no doubt read my chapter on. Well, first of all, there's been a Bigfoot site out here at Catalina a number of years ago and um, probably 20 years ago or so and not far from Avalon fellow was walking back up to the campground late at night and um in our golf course we have a golf course here that runs along that road up to the campground and there he saw says he saw bigfoot just traipsing along you know walking not too far from him before uh, bigfoot ran off another one of my favorite stories that could tie into this i'm always trying to do that. i'm trying to uh connect the the dots between these different stories um instead of just ghost stories just ufo stories just what crazy animal stories i'm trying to connect the dots well um one of my favorite mysteries out here has to do with the black panther the the catalina black panther which i'm sure you guys read that chapter as well um um there are not supposed to be any black panthers on catalina island right hey, um, hey, hey jim just just as note uh they, they call them uh alien black cats abcs oh really okay yeah my my buddy uh nick redford he he, he writes a lot about about them i mean there's they're seeing i mean i'm hearing recently reports in pennsylvania these things oh really yeah yeah, I'd be interested in hearing uh, more about that because that might explain it, especially since the um, sightings started back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, I just talked to a gentleman not long ago, um, eyewitness uh, back in the 60s when he was working up at Two Harps, um, a, uh, an eyewitness sighting from him. In fact, he wrote a book about his experiences on Catalina and he talks about it a little bit. Um, they were uh, walking back from um, uh, camping um, at a place called Little Harbor, Little Harbor Campground. And he was in charge of a little group of uh, boys. They went out for the day and uh, they were coming back into Two Harbors and they decided to take a shortcut back to Two Harbors from Little Harbor. And um, of course, they started to get lost. I think the oldest guy kid was about 14 or so. And um, and darkness started falling and fog started coming in and they were kind of scaling along these cliffs down to the the rocks and the surf you know 100 feet down this is on the backside of catalina where it's it's pretty rugged and um all of a sudden one of the kids looks up and yells what is that 
and they all look over and um, and uh, they see a an enormous black cat, as it was described in the book. And, um, you know, immediately they were afraid they were going to get pounced on. But this black cat kind of turned and started walking away. Well, the uh, fella that uh, gave me this account said that they all felt that this animal was showing them a way out. And so they started to follow the the uh, the animal. And then it got gets better. Then um, a mysterious woman appeared at the top of the very same hill and seemingly unconcerned with this huge black panther beneath her she started motioning to the boys to come this way come a certain way so they did and sure enough just as darkness was falling and you know search and rescue was out for them and everything there they saw the lights of two harbors and they were saved and of course when they went in and explained what happened nobody believed them about the panther but um um the woman they said there wasn't any women out there looking for you it was all sheriff's department people and this is back in the 60s there probably weren't any women on the force anyway so um anyway there's there's been a number of sightings and from very reputable people uh, la county sheriff's uh, deputies um a woods hole biologist saw one and you know a wood you, you you can't be a dummy and get into woods hole you know, woods hole is basically the scripts uh, of the east coast and uh, uh my friend dr bill bushing who also by bi harvard trained biologist um you know has related sightings to me so it's interesting that the the uh sightings have gone on uh, the last one i heard was probably about 10 years ago they've gone on for about 40 years and the average lifespan of a black panther which is basically a mountain lion or a cougar but with you know pigment um, issues uh they only last you know in the wild about 18 to 20 years i believe it is so the fact that these sightings have gone on decades lends credence to your idea there david um um, alien black cat, you know. So anyway, kind of one of my theories speculating on this is could this portal be, you know, the means by which creatures such as this come to the island, the Bigfoot, you know, Black Panthers, that kind of a thing. Um, they inhabit the, the hollow earth, perhaps, and this is how they, they, they make it in. So anyway, that's just kind of my um speculation did you guys read the chapter on um uh, the mysterious minds and lost treasures and, and forgotten minds i uh, guess i did sir now it kind of seems like inevitably there's always like a treasure hunt with these weird areas as well um yeah so buried treasure is kind of a reoccurring motif for this um out of curiosity, do you know if the, the Hollow Earth Society from the 1920s had made any connections between Catalina, the um, uh, the purported theories of an underground civilization in Los Angeles proper, the, um, I think David mentioned them the last time out, actually, the lizard people, quote unquote. The lizard people under Los Angeles. That I like, I say, I found very little information on the actual Hollow Earth Society um, and what they were up to in the Los Angeles area. I, I just know about this this uh, article where they came out to the island, and like I say, whether or not they found anything, I you know I really don't know. Uh, uh, before I forget, I just want to say that it is an honor to be talking with Jim 
It really is. Oh, thank you. You know, like you, you know, when we were when I was doing research for the movie, you you helped me out a lot. And uh, unfortunately, you know, because of you know COVID going on and and uh, all the craziness that was happening, I wanted to get you to be, be in in the movie yeah. for an interview, but I it just we just couldn't meet up, you know, and it was just a a crazy time. Yeah. Well, no problem. It's and it's not so much my doing. I think I I, I owe the island um, all of this because the stories practically write themselves. There's just so many, you know, mysteries out here. I, I, I moved out here. I've been out here for 28 years now, right? And um, um, I noticed right off the bat, I started hearing these stories. Of course, lots of ghost stories. Every place has ghost stories. You know, we we have our ghost stories. There's not a hotel in Avalon that isn't haunted. You know. But I started hearing a lot of these other uh, amazing stories, too. And that was when I, I, in fact, to tell you the truth, I was first going to do this as a film, Mysterious Island Catalina as a film. And um, as you mentioned earlier, you know, I did the documentary Wings Across the Channel um, on the, the seaplane history, which which won an award at the Las Vegas International Film Festival, um, Superior, a Superior Filmmaking Award. And uh, it was on KCET as well. Uh, they they built a whole pledge drive around it, actually. And I was there live at the studios on Sunset Boulevard back when they were on Sunset Boulevard. And I appeared there with uh, Bruce Bellant. And, you know, the song 26 Miles Across the Sea. He, he's the guy that wrote that song. So that was real special for me to, uh, to, to, to be there. But... Um, you know, I'm primarily a writer, so um, and it's just so much, as you know, David, it's so much work to do a film that I figured, you know what, I want to get this out as soon as possible. So I started um, started writing it as a book. And that's, you know, the, some of the first stories were the airmen sighting the discs flying over Avalon and the right, toy, right. the toy on base seance uh, that you mentioned uh, earlier there, Stephen. So, yeah. Um, as far as this portal is concerned, too, um, one of the most fascinating stories to me in the whole book, and, and that I have come across out there, um, has to do with the the mysterious mine that was found back in the 1920s here. Um, years ago, I was in downtown Long Beach, and if you recall, uh, there was a big, huge bookstore the dream bookstore one of those old bookstores a huge place uh rows and rows of shelves of dusty books you know old magazines stacked in the corners the obligatory cat walking around you know and i came across an old mining journal and lo and behold it was from catalina island and i was reading through it i purchased it of course and um there was the vast majority of it was just these uh, uh, dry tables and statistics, the kind of thing they did when they were mining. They used to mine for silver out here in a thing called Galena, which is an agglomerate of, of uh, lead, zinc and silver. Anyway, I came across one of the pages in this journal it was the only page in the entire journal that was actually prose. It was actually, you know, text writing. And it has to do with these two miners. They're doing a copper prospect. They see some copper on the surface and they figure, well, let's prospect it. Let's see if it leads to a larger vein. So, and I'm reading right from the journal here. Accordingly, two miners started drifting this cut along the vein, April 18th, 1925. 
So these guys are digging along this vein, trying to find the the if there's a if it's going to be worth you know mining. They get down you know ten feet or so. They switch off to another direction. Uh, the vein kind of heads off in another direction, and so suddenly here they are. Um, now they're about fifty feet below the surface, and here we go again, reading from the journal. Advancing 16 feet on the second tunnel, the miners broke through into something, quote unquote something, found apparently, quote unquote, prehistoric tunnel driven great many years ago. And uh, you got to figure these guys, uh, they, they dug in it deeper and they found um, an ancient iron spade. Let's see, how do they, uh, a solid iron spade, very ancient. Now, what interests me about this is you got to realize back in the 1920s, when you had a profession, that's what you did your whole life. You know, and your father probably did. These guys, you know, the Wrigley's only hired the best. And these guys were probably um, top notch miners that had probably been in their families. They themselves might have been from the old country, you know, Cornwall or Wales or something like that. And it kind of blows me away as I read this, that these guys didn't even know what this was a prehistoric tunnel driven great many years ago. And um, you would think that they would have known what the shovel was, the spade, but they would, Oh, that's a Spanish, you know, style or something like that. They had no idea what any of this was. Anyway, they kept prospecting and they decided that it, it wasn't, um, wasn't worth the trouble. And um, as magnitude of this source is very questionable, it was decided to abandon the prospect for all time. Well, I myself, um, using the the information that they gave in that book, um, they had how far uh, back the the mine was, what, what beach it was on, and how far back it was from the beach, and at what elevation it was. So what I did is I went on Google Earth, and I took that little, you know, that little yellow measuring tool. And I started at the beach there that is mentioned in there. And I drew it back to, I think it was um, 1,500 feet elevation. And lo and behold, what did I see there was in the Google Earth image was tailings. Um, tailings, if you're not familiar with that, that's all the, the crap that they, when they're digging a mine, all the dirt and the rocks and everything. So it's a very easy way to spot a mine that's being worked is all these rocks and dirt. So there it was. There were the tailings from this prospect. And of course, I got my backpack and water bottle and I went out there and I found the entrance to this mine. It was a vertical shaft. Unfortunately, it had basically all been filled in. I could still see um, the very, very dangerous place, basically. But I could still, with my flashlight, look in and see the old iron girders and things like that that they had used. Um, but, uh, it had otherwise been filled in. So, uh, if you guys know anybody that, uh, has some, uh, pretty good resources, it would be interesting to go back and go back down in there. My, my so, whole... so let, let me, let me tell you something here. Uh, you're going to like this, uh, a friend of mine, uh, his name's Tim Alberino. And he, what he has, it is a ground penetrating radar drone okay that okay. can see 300 feet underground there's only 11 of them built in the world wow. they've got one and it was built to find viking ships under the ice in greenland 
And he took this thing to Peru and he discovered a lost city and they ran it over a pyramid. I forget which one. And they found tunnels <laughs> under the pyramid, which were legend for 5,000 years until they ran the drone over it. Oh, my God. That's something that needs to be brought out there. Yeah, I mean, just the thing, and, and just think of the giant skeletons you can find with yeah. that thing. Yeah, yeah. like sounds like something to look into, uh, you know, because there's a very good possibility that they only filled in the first portion of this um, of this tunnel, this cave. And so it, it could still be open down there. And um, like I say, I, my whole point, what I'm getting to is that, you know, this could be one of those portals, basically. I mean, there's got, there's, I mean, I can't say there's got to be, I guess, in my opinion, it makes sense, you know, because something's going on in that, in that area, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Well, it's just, it's fascinating too, when you look at some of these purported window areas, um, how much mining shows up in it. I mean, I'm uh, based here out of Appalachia and West Virginia. I mean, of course, this is, I'm not in the actual Mothman territory. That's in the Western side of the state. I'm on the DC side. But you we, need to move. Uh, <laughs> trust me, trust me. You, um, the West side has way more meth labs than I really want to be around. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, this is the nice. That would, that would, that would, exp that would explain the recent sightings. <laughs> there we go but i mean it's you know it the whole area here with uh west virginia kentucky the ohio valley um you know this has been a site of a lot of strange doings uh of course there's a just a proliferation of binds around here along with the mothman black cat sightings giant skeletons um native american mounds all the stuff that we're kind of seeing here on Catalina. So it is interesting that you do see the presence of the mines showing up in a lot of this. Um, of course, Nathan mm -hmm. Paul Isaacs of Penny Royal and I have speculated that this might have something to do um, with some of the materials that are mined there. I mean, there's a lot of. Yes. Uh, right, right. Yeah. Nathan told me, you know, about how the, the was it the quartz was, or whatever was found under yeah, Sedona, yeah. under yeah. Sedona and, and that, you know, and that, Somerville, it's like right there is a big, uh, big deposit. And, and he mentioned something that there's something off with the gravity or something in that area as well. No, it's really weird because quartz are ones that you see turn up in a lot of areas that are reported to be um, the window area. I mean, Asheville, North Carolina is another one that's been cited. Mm -hmm. and they talk a lot about the quartz there, too. So be interesting to know if you got some quartz there in Catalina, Jim. Yeah, we, but it also, we, oh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say yes. We we do have um, we do have courts. Yes. What, what I also before we get off the topic uh, of giants, um, you know, when we were out there filming the movie, I asked a lot of locals about that, and one guy told me that the biggest concentration of skeletons that was found on the island is where they built the casino. Yeah, uh, that would be Avalon. So, um, uh, you know, they have done some excavating in Avalon. So um, I have uh, been in touch uh, over the years with, you know who L.A. Marzulli is? You know that name? Very well. Very, very yeah, well. Yeah. Sure yeah. Yeah. yeah he, uh, he came out here a couple of times and I, I uh, took him out to the Catalina Island Museum and he and I. Yeah, I, I saw that. I saw that documentary. 
Okay, yeah, yeah. And um, and you know how he 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 does his estimations as he gets the old photographs since the remains can't be found anymore. Um, in fact, we even uh, L.A. And, and I even went over to the Fowler Museum at UCLA, where a lot of the Native American remains um, are. And um, and, you know, they're basically gone. Uh, they're not there. You know, you can speculate as to what happened to them. But um, uh, do you do you so, know about the do you know about Lovelock Cave? Uh, is that related to Spirit Cave? No, it's it's the cave um, in uh, is it Utah? I can't, I'm so tired. Is it Utah, or Nevada? Nevada? Yeah. So there was the Paiutes. They right. the story is that they trapped uh, a family of giants in a cave and they blocked it and they built the fire on it and killed them. And then years later, these two guys were they were hunting. For, they were mining guano. And they got into the cave and when they were going through the guano, they found all the bones and they found like uh, uh, duck decoys and they found like a fishnet made out of human hair because they were they said they were cannibals. And that's why the Paiutes killed them. Mm. Anyway, there's a museum called Lovelock Museum and they had for years they've had two skulls in the museum. And originally they would put them out for people to see. But now if you go there. Unless you know somebody, they keep them in the back and they won't show them to you. <laughs> but uh, so about two years ago, I was developing a TV show and it was going to be based around somebody that I know that allegedly has DNA. Uh, they were able they knew somebody at the museum and they were given two molars from the skull, the skulls. And we were going to. DNA test them on the show, but the show ended up not happening, you know, but I, I just figured, you know, that would, that would have been real interesting to see if what we got off of that. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds similar to spirit cave, which is also in Nevada and um, where they did find the remains of one individual. And it was a very large person. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not. And interestingly enough, um, he had red hair. He was preserved enough. He was up against uh, a wall, like he had died, you know, up against a wall inside of the, the cave. And enough of him was preserved, and, and uh, he was giant, and he had red hair, which um, is interesting getting back to the Native Americans. Uh, they have long had, uh, among the traditions of most of the Native Americans, certainly in the Western United States, they have, as part of their folklore and legends, um, the presence uh, of, of white men with red hair. In fact, you know, I was mentioning Cabrillo and Vizcano earlier, Spanish uh, uh, explorers. Uh, they were told that they were not the first white men with red beards to come along. And, and that's, that's an established part of the folklore of the Native Americans. And nobody knows who else it would be. There weren't any other Europeans coming out there at that time. You know, the Vikings, I don't think, made it this far. Uh, out west so hmm. i i have a friend of mine um he's a treasure hunter and he's you know he's like a self-taught archaeologist uh he he's he was working with uh brandon fugel from skinwalker ranch uh since like 2003 or something like that but he he uh i gotta introduce you to this guy i mean about giants you know he he says you know 
he's been told where there's a few buried, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, unfortunately they're not they're they're on private property. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm 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 dying to for that to to happen for him to just call me up one day and go, hey, I got access, yeah. you know. Did they find any at Skinwalker Ranch by any? Uh, not, not, not that I know of, not yeah. exactly on the property. And, you know, I'm pretty good friends with, with Brandon and Eric, you know, and I've talked about it, um, before when I actually, one of the first people that, I, one of the first people that I got a hold of when I found out about those teeth was Brandon, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, yeah, he was like, he was excited too, but it, you know, it, it just, it just didn't happen. I mean, he's into that stuff, you know, um, they have that, um, Terry is the vice president of um, the, it's, it's like the ancient historical foundation. It, I don't know, it's a, it's a historic uh, group of people that, you know, it's a hidden history type of stuff, archeologists. Um, and uh, Brandon started, he, Brandon was the, the president, but he just doesn't have time for it anymore. And my friend Terry runs it now. And uh, they have a bunch of lectures of all different researchers from Utah that all they talk about is giants and, you know, people that have bones and stuff like that. So, I mean, they're out there, you know? Yeah. Well, it's a kind of a noble and Mormon country though, as um, that's an ongoing obsession with uh, that particular faith. (laughs) Um, But Jim, uh, did you have anything else on the giant skeletons on Catalina Island? Yeah. Yeah, As a matter of of fact, I'm sorry. Go I, I was kind of saving the uh, the the clincher to to tie all this up with the mysterious tunnel that was found and the giants. Is that it is one of the beliefs of the Hollow Earth Society that guess who guards the portals to the Hollow Earth to the interior of the Earth? A race ooh, of ooh, giants. Ooh. A race <laughs> of giants. <laughs> so that would tie right in that. Um, if this indeed was one of those portals that would explain the presence of giants on Catalina Island, that they acted as the guardians of, of these portals. Now, so, yeah. was, was there supposed, I've read that there was supposedly a mound that they were found buried under in some parts of Avalon. Is that true? That, that I haven't heard. I've, uh, you know, I've talked with uh, LA quite a bit about this. Uh, most of the, remains that L.A. Marzulli is using uh, for his measurements were just found at various locations around the island. In fact, unfortunately, we don't really know where they were. Uh, Like I say, Ralph Glidden was kind of a pseudo archaeologist. And back in those days, you know, it was kind of an up and coming new discipline and there wasn't a lot of rules. So Ralph Glidden really didn't even put down where he was finding these things. So even L.A. Marzulli is not been able to find to my knowledge um hasn't been able to find where they are but where they were uh, you know excavated but um they're from you know there's burial sites all over the island so you know could be from just about anywhere one thing i was surprised to learn uh from dave during the first uh, interview i did with him was the presence of great white sharks off of catalina so how significant are they there yeah that's um you know like most places off the coast of California, we have our fair share of great white sightings. Uh, I would say in any given summer, you know, there's, there's a handful of them. And um, 
they've never attacked anybody. Nobody's ever been killed by a great white. I think the last actual shark attack, um, biting shark attack was like back in the 1960s. But they're out there and you can Isn't, go um, Gu- Guadalupe, isn't that the mating area? That's one of the, the big mating areas. Yes. And that's, um, I don't know, what is that? About 500 miles to the south. Yeah. So it's not real close to Catalina, but, um, but well, one uh, thing I forgot to mention last time, Stephen, is that, you know, when we were doing the movie, when we were doing our research, Kevin Day came up with the idea that he thought there was a connection between the UFO sightings and whales, the whale migration. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, no, I've definitely heard some theories about that. Um, I mean, also possibly with dolphins and some other amphibious uh, creatures as well. But yeah, it's definitely an intriguing subject. Um, well, another one that I'm really fascinated by is the death of uh, Thomas Harper NC, but uh, I was not aware that there was a loose connection to Catalina. And for those of you unaware, Thomas Harper NC was one of the early uh, studio moguls. He had uh, co-founded Triangle um, co- production companies. Don't, don't forget Natalie, Natalie Wood. Well, that was that's a little later. Harper died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the twenties, but um, yeah, Hensy was uh, he was there with Max Sennett and some of these other guys at the very early day of Hollywood in the silent era. Um, but there's a lot of mystery around his death. So, do you want to break that down for us, Jim? Yeah, um, like you say, it's it's kind of a tenuous connection with Catalina, but um, the the, the final destination for this this uh, yachting trip was going to be Catalina, and on board this uh, yacht was not only uh, Thomas Harper Ince, but um, Charlie Chaplin and his squeeze, Marion Davies, and none other than William Randolph Hearst. Well, Thomas Harper Ince, who, by the way, probably would have become a household name. He was an up-and-coming director. Um, uh, he would have been a D.W. Griffith or Cecil B. DeMille or somebody like that, but he died under mysterious circumstances. Um, they took him off the boat in San Diego and he with supposedly a stomach ailment and um, he died uh, within like 24 hours. Well, um, the press got a hold of that and started uh, talking about how William Randolph Hearst, who was in love with Marion Davies, um, either outright shot Thomas Harper into because of the parent, supposedly he caught them in a, uh, compromising position or another theory was that it was Charlie Chaplin that William Randolph first was trying to assassinate shot and missed. And the bullet went through a bulkhead, you know, a wall on a ship and killed, um, NC on the other side, uh, of the wall. Um, so nobody really knows for sure. It's interesting to note that, uh, I think it was Marion Davies secretary, um, was an eyewitness to when they were taking NC off of the boat and he swore up and down that NC had a gunshot wound. And, um, but, uh, the, the, the autopsy was held and it was secret. The, he was cremated. So there was no, um, no proof anymore. And kind of one of the most fascinating things to me is about, two weeks or so or within a month or so shortly after all of this happened William Randolph Hearst quietly paid off the entire mortgage 
for for Thomas Harper Ince, uh, for his home in Hollywood. Now, did he do that out of guilt? Was it an accidental shooting and he did it out of guilt? I don't know, but that's that's a pretty interesting um, argument right there that it was actually a uh, a uh, murder or you know accidental homicide. It was, I believe, it was actually Charlie Chaplin's chauffeur who uh, thought that they had seen Incy uh, with the gunshot wound to his head. Uh, right, had landed, but yeah, it's a very uh, the circumstances around his death are quite peculiar. And then, as you say, yeah. there was the um, the cremation almost immediately afterwards, which supposedly was due to Incy being a theosophist, which I thought was interesting. Apparently, both he and his wife. Uh, were quite taken with theosophy. Uh, so that was sort of mm -hmm. another peculiarity to this figure. But yeah, he was a big guy in early Hollywood. And um, this is also, I should probably add to, kind of unfolding against the backdrop of the you know sort of struggle for control of Hollywood in the early days. Uh, Hearst yes, was very yes. close to uh, Zucker, I believe, Z-U-K-O-R, the, uh, the head essentially of Paramount for years and years. Mm -hmm. And at the time, Paramount was really uh, making a major play to consolidate the film industry. Triangle had been one of their rivals with D.W. Griffith, Max Sennett, who owned Keystone Studios and uh, NC there. Um, but they had been kind of gradually worn down by the Paramount behemoth. So it's kind of a fascinating intrigue with that and, it, you know, really kind of continued to play out up until the late 20s when Joseph P. Kennedy made a bid to uh, buy into Hollywood. But right. there's a lot of weird stuff with that. Um, and then also, too, there was the film The Cat's Meow um, that went into this, uh, which was directed by um, Dave. Who directed the last picture show? It's Peter Bag Bogdanovich. Yes, yes. Thank you. Peter Bogdanovich. He did What's Up, Doc, as well, which I just saw great movie yes he's a he's a character and supposedly he was told the story from uh orson wells oh. uh, he was quite a good friends with orson wells in the 1970s and beyond up to the time of wells's death so wells apparently told him the story and i believe wells claimed to have heard it from um oh what was it harry Mankiewicz, the one who wrote citizen kane um, who had had ties to Mankiewicz, the uh, Mankiewicz family, they big presence in Hollywood, but he had uh, ties to Hearst before they had sort of parted company prior to Citizen mm -hmm. King being released. So there's a lot of interesting stuff with all of that. And I guess it's kind of fitting that Catalina also uh, had a minor role in the whole saga as well. Yeah. Uh, well, it just so happens that his granddaughter, uh, Thomas Harper Ince's uh, granddaughter, Nancy Probert, was a good friend of mine. She's gone now. Um, but she was the stewardess on the uh, the huge four-engine seaplane that they brought, that they used out here uh, back in the 50s and 60s. And her take on it was within the family, they don't think that he was killed by gunshot. They believe it was some kind of a stomach ailment. However, um, she doesn't know personally. That's just what she was. It was handed down to her. And you got to figure if Hearst came in and paid off their mortgage, that would have probably been one of the first things he said is, I'm going to pay off your mortgage, but we have to make a deal. You guys from, uh, you know, in your family lore, you have to say it was an accident or, you know, it was a stomach 
ailment. So, you know, Nancy herself may not have even known the truth. So, yeah. But those were the wild and woolly Hollywood days out here. Um, you know, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, uh, Gloria Swanson, they used to come out here and, and you know, party like crazy because you got to realize that, that uh, you know, nowadays they all go off to Bali or, you know, they got their islands in the Caribbean. But in those days, you know, Catalina was, it was a struggle just to get out to Catalina. So, so they left their mark out here and uh, they used to come out here and uh, Gloria Swanson would rent out the entire top floor of the Glenmore Plaza Hotel here in Avalon for an entire summer. And um, Charlie Chaplin had his own room up there and everything. And they would just party, you know, all, all summer long up there. And, uh, and they Must made be over- nice. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, it's uh, and they, they made over 300 silent movies up at the other end of the island, up two harbors. Anytime that you got insomnia and, you, you know, you can't sleep and it's two or three in the morning, you turn the TV on. There's an old silent movie. If there's an island in there, say it's supposed to be an exotic South Seas island or something, you know, 99 percent. That's going to be Catalina. They did a lot of a lot of filming out there. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize how instrumental Catalina was to the early days of Hollywood, but it really, uh, as you're saying, I mean, it was the basis for filming a lot of stuff. And I also seem to recall also westerns, too, like in the interior of the island, right? Yeah. Is that how you ended up with all the boars, I think, out there? Yeah, they were brought out for hunting, actually, but um, the buffalo are a direct connection to that. They were brought out in 19, you know, we have about 100 head of uh, buffalo, Um Technically, they're bison, but we call them buffalo. They were brought out uh, for filming a Western. There was a director back in those days. You may have heard of James Cruz was his name. And he was one of the first uh, Western uh, directors of Western uh, novels uh, or or films. And uh, they were filming out here. We're not even entirely sure what film it was. Um, it was either the vanishing American or the covered wagon or the thundering herd. But anyway, they, they brought, about 14 bison out here, buffalo out here. And in those days, they, you know, didn't care. So they, they just left them. <laughs> and and uh, and uh, to this day, they're still on the island here. So, yeah, it's a big part of our landscape here out here. The buffalo are like, you know, they're part of this island. And uh, it's a direct result of the Hollywood years. Well, as many listeners are probably aware, I'm quite fascinated by the Tuna Club of Avalon, which served as the inspiration for Noah Cross's Albacore Society in the classic Chinatown. Uh, And some of the actors that we've been discussing here, namely Charles Chaplin, uh, the director Max Sennett, who also was occasionally an actor, and some other individuals like Tom Mix were all uh, members of the uh, Tuna Club of Avalon. It's quite intriguing. Um, Jim, uh, what's your take on the group? And do you have any good stories about them? Well, the the Tuna Club is, is you know, the, the real life version of the Albuquerque Club. That was a great movie, by the way. And that was John Houston um, uh, playing Noah in the film. Um, the Tuna Club was basically the whole sport of sport fishing got started right here on Catalina. And it was founded around the turn of the century, um, um, Charles Frederick Holder. And they, back in those days, there was just so much waste. You know, fishing was like a profession back then, basically. Um, The whole idea of using light line and special lures and playing the fish, giving the fish a chance 
and that kind of thing. That was kind of unheard of until Holder came along and started the Tuna Club. And um, um, it is a very exclusive club. I've been, I've only been in the building out of 30 years, 27, 28 years on the island. I've only been in the, the building twice. To be a member, you can't just be a rich guy. You have to be like a, a mogul, a head of, of uh, empire, you know, not to mention you have to go through a whole rigmarole of catching a certain number of species of certain species of tuna, certain weights on certain reels, on certain lines. And um, so it's, it's quite a secretive uh, exclusive club. And, um, you know, I guess I've gleaned some ghost stories over the years um, if, if you're angling towards that kind, those kinds of stories, um, other than the famous people, you know, Winston Churchill, um, was, was a member and, uh, they've got, uh, photographs of him in their fish uh, tuna that he caught, but, um, like just about all places in Avalon, it has its share of ghost stories, including possibly the, the, uh, ghost of Charles Frederick Holder himself. Um, seriously, Holder's ghost is supposed to haunt there? Yeah, um, they see a translucent man looking rather stoic, not really interacting um, with anybody around him. Um, and then he will just like poof, you know, disappear. Um, other Another sighting is of a gentleman in a white shirt with a bow tie um, who is seen occasionally walking through the halls and walking right through a wall. Um, and then, you know, basically disappearing. But the, the probably one of the most common ghost stories you hear with the Tuna Club are conversations where nobody is there. Um, a lot of these old buildings in Avalon, they have like one caretaker that lives there. Where the nearby Catalina Island Yacht Club is the same way. So you have this one person, you know, living in the place overnight. And um, there's a number of stories of hearing conversations down around the bar area. And then they go down there and turn the lights on and there's, you know, nobody there. So I guess those are only the only kind of uh, interesting stories I have other than the historical ones about the tuna club. It's it's if you like trout fishing or anything, fly fishing, you can thank Charles Frederick Holder because that's that's where the whole sport of sport fishing began was right here in Avalon. Yes, it's uh, certainly a fascinating topic, and uh, one of the uh, big families behind the Tuna Club in the early years, and for Catalina on the whole, was uh, the Banning family. Of course, uh, they were the ones largely responsible for the uh, Port of L.A., and uh, they also played an instrumental role in establishing um, the Jonathan Club and the California Club in uh, Los Angeles proper, which are kind of equally exclusive uh, organizations they don't really have the you know the attachment to sports necessarily that the tuna club does but it would be the same kind of milieu of um kind of billionaire class i suppose so uh, another fascinating aspect of the uh, tuna club and catalino on the whole <laughs> Salty air, 
start getting a little winter than we already have gentlemen so jim uh oh another note too i just wanted to throw in here um the topic of ghost stories and movies here it's uh funny to note that um what was it terry houdini's movie uh terror island was actually filmed on catalina as well mm-hmm. of course dini was one of the um major antagonists of spiritualism and communications from beyond the dead so who knows? Maybe one of these days, some joker will try to communicate uh, with Houdini on Catalina Island. Maybe they would have had more success there than other spots. Mm. Well, uh, anyway, let's start getting weird here. So, Jim, what's up with this uh, Toy on Bay seance? Apparently, it was one of the most um, notorious paranormal events in the island's known history. So, who was involved, and what can you tell us about it? Yeah, that that basically the the true story of the Toy on Bay seance is is basically the story that made me finally decide, you know what, I got to write a book or or do a film about this. Um, Toyon Bay, first of all, if there's any one vortex area on the island, it would be Toyon Bay. Um, all kinds of strange things happen there. Uh, the Green Door, which you know we might discuss here later, um, uh, all takes place on Toyon Bay. It's sort of a focal point of the weirdness on Catalina Island. So anyway, um, back in the early 70s, um, a gentleman named uh, Paxson Ofield, who was basically the heir to the Wrigley fortune. He, he ran the island for many, many years. Very beloved figure here. He's gone now, too. But he was a camp counselor at Toyon Bay. It was like a boys' school back then. Well, one day, uh, he and his uh, buddies were out hiking in the canyons above uh, Toyon Bay. And it was after a torrential rain, it was in the winter, and they came across a human skull in a ravine. 
Well, like I, I say in the book, the, the kind of tagline is their first mistake was taking the skull back with them to their cabin. Their second mistake was trying to contact its owner. What they did, and I, I talked with uh, Packy directly, we call him Packy. I interviewed him directly about this. Um, and uh, you got to understand, Paxton Oldfield was a no-nonsense, meat and potatoes kind of guy, multi-billionaire, a very philanthropic man, uh, president of the International Sport Fishing Association, all kinds of things like that. But the kind of guy that 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 doesn't have to bullshit people. He, he wealthy, uh, you know. He tells you like it's straight. He doesn't. He says what he means. That kind of a guy. So uh, he said, Jim, everything I'm about to tell you really happened. So anyway, they bring the uh, skull back to the camp there and uh, they researched how do you hold a, a seance and they got books from the library and how those things that you're supposed to say in Latin and and all that. And so the, the it, I think he told me like a couple of months they were researching. This is before the days of the Internet, of course, so they couldn't just look it up. And uh, the appointed night came and they they went out to the little boathouse on the old pier out there. And they set everything up, complete with black candles and everything. And they all sat around this table. And the fellow that was leading the seance started the whole thing, the sayings in Latin or whatever they were supposed to say, chanting. And they went through the whole rigmarole. And then they stopped and nothing happened. And so they, well, you know, maybe this is all nothing. Let's try it again. So... They figure, okay, we'll 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 start from the top. We'll do it again. So the, the lead uh, guy at the sensor started again, and almost immediately, there was a reaction. First of all, temperature dropped dramatically in the boathouse. There, they were all like puffing steam. It got so cold. A blue orb came through the window of the boathouse and hovered right up above the skull on the table. Then the fellow leading the seance went into some kind of a trance and started speaking in a quote-unquote foreign language. And um, I asked Packy, I said, was it just like gibberish or was it a structured language? And he said, it was a structured language. But it gets weirder. Um, as this was happening, suddenly that young man started to levitate. His legs were crossed there, and he started levitating above the table, still speaking in this foreign language. He was thrown across the room, across the boathouse, landed right on top of Packy, by the way. And all of the, they all just ran out screaming, of course, you know, who, who wouldn't? And, um, and they reconnoitered on the beach there, and they realized they had to run and get the skull. They couldn't have any of the, the main camp counselors find out what they were doing or anything. So the one kid ran back in and got the skull, and they ran back and put it in the kid's closet, the, the seance lead guy. So they were all very freaked out about it. <laughs> anyway, the, the one guy that was leading the seance started to develop really bad respiratory problems. He couldn't breathe. So they had to run him into the hospital. And he spent a day in the hospital, during which time he almost died. While he was in the hospital, in his closet where he had placed the skull, a fire got started and burned that corner of their little cottage. So, um, um, and, you know, like I said, Packy said, this is, that's exactly what happened. And he said words to the effect that anybody who doesn't believe in a spirit world needs to have something like this happen to it. 
Man, that is some Sam Raimi Evil Dead shit. Yeah. Now my it doesn't it, it, it doesn't seem okay. My thoughts on this are that I bet that what they did had nothing to do with the skull. Like it wasn't the ghost of whoever skull it was. It was a ritual, and they, they yeah, they yeah. That is my take. That. I mean, that's the first inclination is, well, the spirit of the skull was you got angry. But and there's... and, and the, the, the blue orb right there tells you, I mean, blue orbs are seen everywhere. And those are the ones on Skinwalker Ranch that they call the blue meanies because <laughs> they're, they're negative. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's what I think was going on was it was what I call the overseer of Toyon Bay teaching these boys a lesson that you don't mess with this kind of black magic um, because there's a lot of other really weird things that there's too much to go into today. It's, can, can you, can you just, can you talk about the green door for a minute? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's another thing there. And, and it gets back to the portals too. The green door is exactly what it sounds like. It's literally a, a green door with like columns on the side sometimes that randomly appears in these very same hills where these guys were out hiking sometimes it's it's built up against it's up against a a cliff other times it's floating in midair sometimes it's open sometimes it's closed and um i again i i tracked down somebody who had actually seen it an eyewitness uh her name was carol and she's now a unitarian minister up in santa barbara same thing, meat and potatoes kind of person, not a flighty kind of person at all. And um, she told me the story of her and her sister and two boyfriends were hiking in the hills above um, above uh, Toyon Bay one time, and they came across the, the green door. And they started approaching it, and it was open. And Carol told me you could kind of see inside before they got too close to it. You could see inside, and it was like it went on forever, she said. Well... Suddenly, they all started to feel what she described as like a tractor beam pulling them towards it. And, and I asked her, I go, was this like a, a curiosity pulling you to it? Or was this like a visceral pulling, a physical pulling? And she says it was a physical pulling. And it was pulling them towards this open door and they could not break it. And she said her sister screamed. And suddenly the tractor beam shut off and they all, of course, went running back to uh, back to back to the camp and told another friend of mine. He's the one that hooked me up with being able to talk with her. But, uh, you know, again, it gets back to that portal. Are the Black Panthers coming through there? Is is it guarded by the giants down there? Did the big, Bigfoot come through there? Um, uh, so, you know, it's it's there's something very strange about that area. And it's interesting that most of the stories that I hear about Toyon Bay uh, occurred after World War II. Mm -hmm. And, and um, there were some ghost stories, of course, before that. But and the reason I bring that up and find it interesting is during World War II, that was the training area for the OSS. Yes, it um, was. The, the, the Office of Strategic Services, the precursor to the CIA was in 1947. They started the CIA out of the OSS. And these guys were the special forces guys being trained. Specifically here at Catalina, they were being trained for the Southeast Asia. Um, we didn't have much in the way of forces in 
in Southeast Asia in the early years of the war. So these guys were trained to go behind enemy lines. They learned the, the languages of headhunter tribes and the tribes that lived in that area. They made alliances with these people because they hated the Japanese, you know, as much as we did. And um, anyway, one of the things that they dabbled in there um, was remote viewing. And um, that was a new kind of deal back then, too. You know, the Great Britain was using remote viewing during the Battle of Britain because, you know, it was pre-satellite era. They they wanted to know what was going on behind the German lines because they were getting the crap bombed out of them, you know, uh, day and night. Wait, wait, wait. I'm, so, I'm sorry. This was before World War II or like, I mean, around is, the beginning? This is during World War II. They were doing remote viewing during World War II. And one of the people involved there, as I understand it, was Lucien Conine. Is that how you pronounce his name? Um, he, was, he was one of the guys that was later, when the CIA uh, was actively involved in remote viewing, um, he was one of the guys working with the CIA on that. So, And I know he was also trained at, at Toyon Bay with... with um, with the OSS. Now, I don't have any physical proof that he was doing right. it there, but you can put two and two together. So anyway, my hey, Jim, uh, may I ask, like, where would where did you see that uh, Conan was involved with uh, the remote viewing projects that the CIA were doing? Because I actually just published a book, The Art, where um, I wrote quite extensively about him and his uh, mm -hmm. with his work with Edward Lansdale. Yeah, um, I don't have that information right now but i you know i've come i came across it in reading up on his biography no uh jim do, jim do you remember me talking about uh how kit green had a psychic do a remote viewing on catalina island uh no i don't was that when you uh, were yeah so ago? last time i spoke about it and kit, kit green is one of the the godfathers of the remote viewing program and he enlisted the help of what these guys thought was like the best real and legit psychic to, 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 to view the, the area. And what happened was the, when, when she called him to do the report to tell him what she saw, it got recorded and it got leaked online. And um, I couldn't find the audio for a long time. And a listener heard, heard the episode and he sent Stephen a link. I'll have to send it to you okay? because yeah. basically she says, you know, um, she, she sees uh, a, a, a base under the water mm -hmm. of aliens, I guess, and that they've been there forever and they are there protecting a fault line. Hmm. I'll have to, I'll send you the link and you can listen to it. It's like 45 minutes long. The report that okay, she gives yeah. him. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, Stephen. Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, to interject some more here, too, about these uh, OSS guys here, because I do have a, a bit of familiarity with this group. Another one I know you had cited was E. Howard Hunt, and I had uh, asked Jimmy Fallon Gong, a program to chill about this, uh, because Hunt and um, Lucy and Conan are a part of a rather notorious clique of military and CIA officers that were dubbed the China right. Cowboys. Uh, John General John Sinklob was another one, as well as the notorious arms tra trafficker Mitch Warbell III, um, who incidentally ended up working security for Larry Flint for a time, of all people. But um, Warbell 
from what Jimmy told me, may have also have been uh, doing training there as well. So I find it fascinating, uh, even if there was not a remote viewing connection there, that you would have had a lot of these China cowboys training on Catalina Island, because many of these guys were um, quite integral to uh, the U.S. involvement in the drug trafficking and the Cold War era for many, many mm -hmm. years. Um, Lucien Conan had... Uh, for instance, extensive ties to the French mafia. I think it was the, the Corsian Brotherhood or something to that effect. And he had something of a reputation as Lansdale's uh, concierge when dealing with a lot of the big French drug traffickers in Vietnam. So there is a really kind of unsettling component to that as well. Yeah. Um, another one that I know we didn't mention the last time, but the Merchant Marine uh, had also trained on Catalina Island in World War II. And I can't remember the gentleman's name, but uh, Marilyn Monroe was actually living on Catalina Island, I believe in 41 or 42, but she was still Norma Jean. Uh, and she was married to this guy in the Merchant Marine who, uh, after the divorce, later went on to become one of the co-founders of the SWAT team in L.A. So uh, you also had Marilyn Monroe on Catalina during the uh, run up to World War II. So that's another kind of weird one there. Yeah. James Doherty was his name. James Doherty, thank you, thank you. Yeah. Uh, so yes, also the founder of the SWAT team, or one of the uh, founders of the modern SWAT team, also had a presence on Catalina Island and did training there. So, mm -hmm. all right, well, let's talk about uh, one of the most enigmatic figures who's ever turned up on Catalina Island, which is saying something. This is Thomas Townsend Brown. Uh, so Dave, can you give the kids at home a quick crash course on Mr. Brown? I'm going to let you do that. I mean, I, you know, you're, you're more knowledgeable on him than me. Uh, well, he had worked with the Navy in the 1930s, and for years there had been a lot of speculation uh, that his research had been used for the Philadelphia experiment. Uh, later, UFOs, yep, yep. Later, he became one of the co-founders of NICAP, uh, another interesting development in his career. And uh, Jim, as you tell it, he ended up in Catalina Island during the latter years of his life. Uh, so could you get into that and anything else about Mr. Brown's biography I might have missed? Yeah, he, you know, he was one of the early quantum physicists, basically. He started out in the 1920s, which was kind of when quantum physics really started to uh, get moving. And uh, he was very colorful character, um, almost James Bondish in a lot of ways, especially during the war. I, I interviewed extensively interviewed his his daughter, uh, Linda Leach, uh, about all of this because she was, you know, basically right alongside of him and helped him out with his experiments and that kind of a thing. So, um, um, yeah, he was involved in some manner or other with the Philadelphia experiment. She said that he never wanted to talk about it. So she, even she doesn't know very much about it, but it would have been exactly something that he would have done because he was during the war, you know, he was, he was into all that kind of stuff. And they, he was the go-to guy, one of the go-to guys for that kind of a uh, thing. Yeah. They, they called Einstein the guy that came up with the theories, but Thomas Townsend Brown was the guy who tried to put them into, uh, into action. Uh, his whole, Holy Grail was to try to reconcile electromagnetism with gravity. Try to figure out what is gravity. You know, we really don't even know what gravity is. Of all the things we humans know, that's one of the things we really don't know. So he spent his life basically trying to to figure that out. And yes, he started uh, uh, 
National Investigations Committee of Aerial Phen uh, Phenomena was the uh, NICAP. He started that back in the 1950s. And uh, it's interesting that we've come back to the term aerial phenomena after all these years. So, but anyway, yes, in his later years, um, a, a good friend of mine here on the island was personal friends with him back there, back then. He moved here in 71, I believe it is. And he's buried here on the island. Um, every now and then I have occasion to go up and visit the boot hill up there, the cemetery, and I always go pay him a visit. He wanted to have a bench near his grave so that people could come visit him. <laughs> so I do from time to time. But anyway, my friend told me that um, it was pretty fascinating because Brown saw something special. Here we go back to that Catalina thing. There was something special about the just the geology of Catalina. It was an energy in the rocks. And he said Thomas uh, Townsend Brown could walk along the beach. And he did this with him. Walk along the beach and he'd see a rock and pick it up and he'd put some electrodes to it and there would be a little charge in there. And, um, and he, he said, you know, he, he was trying to work on some way to get energy um, out of these rocks. Linda, his daughter, told me a fascinating story. I guess it was back in the 70s where they were living in an old Quonset hut out there at uh, what we call Pebbly Beach. And one evening, there's a knock on the door and there's a handful of there had been a, a nuclear submarine uh, in Avalon Bay, you know, R&R, &R, I guess, for the crew was there for two or three days. And there at the door was a handful of sailors and an officer. Um, one of the sailors had a submachine gun with him. And and, you know, Daddy, <laughs> somebody's here to see you. And Brown came out and everything was cool. He go, oh, come on in, boys. You know, it was, it was all arranged ahead of time. There wasn't anything nefarious. And Brown goes, Dr. Brown goes back and gets a box of the Catalina rocks and hooked up with little electrodes on them and hands them to one of the sailors. And OK, take it easy. Goodbye, gentlemen. Good night, gentlemen. And they left. And Linda, to this day, knows doesn't know what that was about. But here's a crew of a nuclear submarine. You know, in, with instructions, go see this Dr. Brown and get some some stuff from him. See what he has to say, you know. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. Uh, I, I, th I, think, I think the first time I ever heard his name was in the 90s from Al Bielik on uh, Art Bell, Coast to Coast. Yes. Well. If I could uh, contribute a little bit here on um, some of the possibilities with Brown uh, being on Catalina Island and going back to the Philadelphia experiment, uh, this was a program that I have been very weary of for many years, and I'm still quite weary of it, especially since it uh, was later became so instrumental in what was effectively an alternate reality game known as the Montauk Conspiracies. But what's intriguing about the early accounts of the Philadelphia experiment is that it was described as being a part of research the Navy was doing into radar countermeasures. And the reason why this is interesting is that that would have surely fallen under the parameter of the Radio Research Laboratory, which is a little known body uh, from World War II. It was a part of the much more well-known Rad Lab. However, the Radio Research Laboratory was significantly more classified. And in fact, a lot of the records concerning it remain classified to this day. 
Now, it was headed by a very, very important figure that is very rarely acknowledged, and his name is Frederick Terman. Terman is a longtime affiliate of Stanford University. Well, he's now deceased, but he is more or less the man who created Silicon Valley as we know it. In the post-war years, he was the Navy's primary point man with Stanford and ensured a tremendous amount of funding was dispatched from the military to Stanford to build it up into what it is today. And Terman ensured that a lot of this went towards emerging fields like computers, but also microwaves. And he actually had a large hydrogen collider or a proto version of it built at Stanford as well. Many, many intriguing things. So... Getting back to the radio research laboratory, I uh, had the pleasure of going through some of the papers that uh, Frederick Terman left to Stanford when I was there at Hoover uh, this past year. And I found some really interesting accounts of some of the work that they were doing. One involved research on what we would now think of as a plasma weapon or a kind of laser weapon. Uh, which is intriguing, the fact that Terman built that world-class microwave laboratory at Stanford after the war. But even more interesting were the discussions that he had about bouncing uh, particle beams, I believe, off the ionosphere. Essentially, this was the kind of technology that they were looking into there that would later be used for HARP uh, in the post-war years. So... What it amounts to is that a lot of this research could be construed as a part of what we would now think of as psychotronic or uh, non-lethal weapons and that type of thing, which raises some interesting possibilities about the prospects of what Stanford was actually doing with this technology under Terman. But also, it raises some intriguing possibilities about the Philadelphia experiment, because if it was actually tied to the radio research laboratory, there has been some compelling evidence that's come out that they were investigating some of this more woo-woo kind of stuff. So I find that especially interesting in this regard that Brown would have ended up on the island there. Certainly, uh, this also plays into the fact that there are several Navy bases. In fact, there's the one on, um, oh, Jim, what is the island right next to it? San Clemente, I believe. Yes, uh, the Navy runs San Clemente Island, which is, uh, you know, probably another 20 nautical miles from us. They also run um, San Nicolas Island. So it might be either one of those two. So, yeah, there's two um, very, I know the Clemente one is a very classified naval base. Um, you've got then uh, Terman at Stanford for years. He was the provost of the university eventually who is serving as the point man for the Navy in the Office of Naval Research. They're building up all of these research facilities around Stanford. And then you have Mr. Brown out there in Canalita, which I imagine is not very far from San Francisco by plane, uh, if you need it, or certainly probably not even by boat. So, yeah, you could uh, definitely ponder about what kind of experiments could potentially be uh, involved uh, could uh, the navy could be involved with with these characters out there so Dave, we had discussed the possibility of this being a bit of a window area before do you think brown's presence there in his work lends further credence to this notion uh i mean i think to tell me why he was there you know uh it's this is one of those things it's like chicken or the egg 
you know, was there already a portal there or did somebody cause a portal to open there type of thing? You know, that's, that's my theory. I don't know, man. Jim, do you have any thoughts? Well, that's kind of why I brought up the OSS um, idea and um, and why I haven't come across those kinds of weird stories, at least at Toyon Bay, until the OSS was there. I'm just wondering if the dabbling in remote viewing somehow punched a hole, in, you know, in the fabric of space time and created some kind of a portal. That, that that was what instigated it, you know, because remote viewing is, you know, sort of a black art in its in itself. And maybe that opened a portal. So, you know, that's that's kind of my speculation. I don't come across any stories of the green door before World War II. Let me put it that way. Interesting. Well, as an added bonus here as we wrap up, uh, one of the weirdest connections I've seen to Catalina Island is Ocean Gate. So for those of you unaware, that is the company that provided submersibles for underwater tourism. And it gained headlines during the summer of 2023 when one of those submersibles exploded while on an expedition to the wreckage of the Titanic, killing company founder Stock and Rush, among others. So, Jim, one of the weird things about this is OceanGate actually worked at Catalina Island during tours there for a couple of years before it went on to the Titanic. Uh, did you ever encounter Rush or have any details about OceanGate? Well, oh, my God. I, I'm sorry. I got to say this. I met the guy. Is that the guy that owns the yellow submarine there? Uh, you might be thinking of a fellow named John Council. Okay, sorry. He, <laughs> yeah. Um, Go ahead. <laughs> and he's still here. He's he's a great guy. Works with animal, um, uh, marine mammal rescue, that kind of thing. And he was we we, we we talk, we talked to him about putting uh, cameras on his sub okay. to look for look for uh, USOs. Yeah, but I'll I'll shut up now. Sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, that's quite all right. Um, I, I if I did ever meet uh, Stockton, I I didn't know it at the time. You know, I didn't know who he was back then. I do recall uh, when he was doing that. And um, um, and I remember John Council's submarine as well. So that was before I started doing research on the book uh, as well. But, you know, this is a perfect place to do that kind of thing is um, is Catalina Island because you're close to a good customer base in Los Angeles. And of course, we're world famous for our crystal clear waters and the kelp forests and that kind of a thing. Um, I personally did not meet him. However, my brother met him. and. Um, my brother is an aerospace engineer. In fact, they met at some kind of symposium or something like that. And I'll tell you, my brother was not impressed with him. <laughs> he was not impressed with, I mean, he knew the guy was smart and all, but, um, you know, my brother working for aerospace, you know, NASA, SpaceX, he works directly with SpaceX, you know, safety, 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 and, and, going through all the rigmarole you know uh by the numbers and he could just tell this Stockton rush guy was was a hot shot pilot basically and he wasn't surprised at all you know part of it was the design of of the titan um you know the best the best design for any kind of a vessel that's going to go down to those depths is a sphere right on the trieste when, when we first went to the marianas trench uh, back in the 60s, I think it was. A sphere is going to be your safest deal. Well, Stockton decided to make it more of a tube um, cap ended with, you know, spear, sphere halves in order to get more people in there so he could make more money. But my brother said his, um, 
the Titan, it was even two dissimilar materials. You had um, iron for the, the, the end caps and it was carbon fiber for the actual tube part itself. And where those two joined together, you know, that's always kind of a bad idea to join two dissimilar materials like that if they're going to be subject to that kind of stress. So um, anyway, that's that's, you know, my experience with the whole the whole thing. So. Yeah, it's uh, just another kind of weird synchronicity with Catalina Island. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, we've got one more bonus round for you guys out there. So I'm sure everybody has been hearing about those weird aliens that were supposedly witnessed at a Miami mall. The general punchline is that this entailed some kind of 10 to 12 foot tall, I believe, quasi-transparent being or something to that effect. Our man uh, Dave Altman here has been gathering information about this incident since it began to unfold on New Year's or shortly thereafter. So, Dave, can you tell us what have the kids been saying about all this? What have you heard on the X? Oh, man. Well, I mean, where do I begin? <laughs> um, so. It's it's I, I've been getting conflicting dates, whether it's uh, July 1st or July 3rd. One of the witnesses tells me it's July 3rd and everybody else is pretty much saying the first. Now, what I'm talking about is the Miami Mall incident where. The cops allegedly were called in. And when I say cops, I mean literally the entire police force, about 100 cars, were called in to, uh, I think it was the Biscayne Mall down in Miami. Um, the, 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 the public's being told that what happened was there was a bunch of uh, kids fighting with sticks and, the, uh, and, they were, and they had fireworks. And the reason that the such a big show of force from the police was so big was that because it was New Year's and because of the fact that there's been so many smash and grabs going on that they were ready for something to happen. So it being New Year's and something happening, that's why the entire police force was there. So after that story comes out, we start getting another story, which includes video and the story is is that what actually happened was portals were opening up and entities were coming out of them they were being described as between eight to ten feet tall and having some type of either either glitch or some kind of of um what do you call it camouflage you know like predator looking stuff that was malfunctioning on them. Um, maybe like, all right, so the first video, the first video comes out and it's a kid saying, okay, I was there, this is what happened. And he said he was in shopping with his girlfriend. They heard a bunch of commotion. He walks outside, sees the cops and sees this thing and pretty much freaks out. Um, he said, you know, uh, the, the police were taking people's phones. Uh, phones were glitching. P the cops were erasing people's um, videos and, what, and whatnot. 
they were going through the crowd taking phones. So that comes out. And then a few hours later, more videos start popping up and there are people claiming to be at this mall. And this is, this happened. There were aliens at the mall. So the next day, the same kid who put out that first video, who I was telling you about, puts out another video and says, Hey y'all, I was trolling. I've never even been to Miami. Okay. So right away, I'm kind of, I'm kind of like, all right, it's over, you know, but then more videos start coming out and more witnesses start talking. Um, so what I did was because these were all on TikTok. I never even used TikTok before. So, so I, I made, I made an account and I put a video up that said, Hey guys, you know, I'm a TV producer and I work on all these UFO alien shows. Uh, you know, if you'd like to talk to me or some people I work with and we can maybe get your story out there, you know, hit me up. And I got a hold of a couple of them. Um, one of them asked me for money to talk, just to talk. Um, another one um, I talked to on a Twitter space. At the beginning, sounded pretty convincing. And I asked him if he talked to me afterwards and if he would take a polygraph, which he agreed to. Haven't heard back from him yet. And then there's another girl who has come out and said she was there. But I'm feeling kind of sketchy about her because her thing is her and her boyfriend own a big Bitcoin company. And I'm just a little weary about, you know, them trying to promote something like that. Because um, another researcher, uh, Alien Girl, found out that like the day before this happened, she found a Twitter account. And on the Twitter, not, I mean, she found the account afterwards, but it was an NFT company called Miami Aliens. And the tweet that they put out like the day before this happened was somebody's about to get rich. So that makes me think that this could all be some kind of stunt to, to get publicity for something. I don't know. That's where we're at. The videos, uh, there's no actual, of course, you know, there's no actual video of an alien. There's, there's some chopper footage. I'm sure everybody, I mean, this thing went so viral, went may, way more viral than, than the Vegas thing. Um, but I'm sure everybody's seen the videos. Uh, there's one screen capture of like a glitching alien. You really, it's like a blob squatch, typical, typical stuff, you know? I mean, that's about the size of it <laughs> in a nutshell. If I'm not mistaken, doesn't it kind of have like some strange parallels to one of the Stranger Things seasons too? Like I think the second or third one or something where there's like the portal in the mall or something to that effect. Yeah, so there there wasn't there wasn't a portal in the mall, but there was like uh, there, oh, it's right under the mall. They under the mall they had a portal. And at the end of it, at season four, they fought like this big monster in the mall. Correct. Classic. Now well, you've got the Stranger Thing references. Yeah. The but I, I will say this, Stephen. Like, I don't know, man. I, you know, I have a feeling it's a hoax. I, I mean, it could be. I could be wrong. I mean, there's a lot of similarities between what they're talking about and what happened down in Peru. 
So, you know, the descriptions of the beings are a lot like the ones in Peru. Um, and, you know, we're not that far away, you know. So, but it's like, the question is, you know, were, like, why were they at a mall? There was one theory, this one woman put out a video and she said, because there, because there's rumors of a base in Antarctica, she had put in the coordinates from, from Antarctica to Miami in reverse and that it matched up and that she feels that the aliens put the coordinates into their portal backwards. So they ended up at the Miami mall. I, I don't know, man. Uh, yeah, that's somebody is going to lose their job over that. Yeah. yeah. Someone going to, someone going to get canceled. <laughs> so I don't know until we have more evidence. Uh, I think it's a hoax. Yeah, it's uh, definitely a peculiar set of circumstances there. And that's really interesting, too, with the uh, the component with the cryptocurrencies as well, no doubt. Um, yeah, so uh, on, on one more thing on that, and, I'll t and this is what makes me think it could be a hoax. So, you know the Las Vegas event, correct? Uh, refresh everybody's memory about it real quick. Uh, sorry, man, I'm, I haven't slept. <laughs> um, so few months ago uh some some body cam or dash cam footage came out of a cop in vegas he's pulled over somebody for speeding and in the background a huge green fireball can be seen and the cop's like oh my god you know what was that and then a half hour later a 911 call comes in and it's a kid saying that a ufo has crashed in my yard and there's nine to 10 foot aliens, two of them in my backyard right now. So the cop flies over there. And of course we get no body cam footage because right when he shows up and talks to the family, we lose the body cam footage. Um, there was some footage that came out. People claimed that they, cause these people, they, their business was on their property in the backyard. And they had like a forklift and they had like a big kind of kind of a maybe 50 foot kind of parking area. They claimed that uh, in the video of one of the body in the body cam footage, you can see the being like crouching behind it. And also there's drone footage of the backyard and there's a huge circle that's like either scraped or burnt into the ground the shape of a huge disc on, on the pavement. So here's where, here's what I ran across. So the kid put out a YouTube channel and one video on it, which has almost a million views. And the name of his channel is alien society 51. So what I did was I looked on, I did a search for anything else mentioned on the internet called Alien Society 51. And those are not words that are usually put together. It's usually Area 51, something like that. But I've never heard Alien Society 51 before. And it's the name of this kid's channel. What I found was a Twitter account for an alien NFT called, what do you think it was called? 
Was it Miami something, man? <laughs> it was Alien Society 51. Ah, nice, nice. Now, it's funny, that kind of makes me think of um, F Society from Mr. Robot as well, where they have yeah. a lot in there with like cryptocurrencies and what have you. Yeah, so, you know, and the kid, the kid in Vegas had, between the sighting of the fireball by the cop and the 911 call was a little over 30 minutes. So that if the kid saw that fireball, he had over 30 minutes to come up with something to do something. Yeah. So now Generation Zers, whenever they see something weird, the first thought is, "Damn, that is going to be a great NFT, man." Yeah. And 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 I'll and I'll repeat myself. I hope I'm wrong. I friggin' hope aliens landed in this kid's yard. That would be awesome. I think it would be amazing if they're nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has been an absolutely fascinating conversation, Jim and Dave. I appreciate you guys so much for coming on here. All right. And thank you for inviting me. And then just if I can weasel one more plug in uh, my book, oh, The Mysterious Island, Catalina. If you go to Amazon, make be sure you put Catalina on there because Mysterious Island, of course, was uh, one of the most famous, uh, one of the first science fiction books ever written. Uh, Jules Verne, one of my favorite movies when I was a kid, you know, with the big stop action monsters and stuff like that. So I, I named my book basically as a in tribute to Jules Verne's book. So yeah, Ama ama amazing book. Am I, I, every interview I've ever done, I've plugged your book. Okay. Appreciate it. Yeah. It's a, a great book, uh, brisk and packed full of a lot of incredible information, kind of the polar opposite of my books. My books are packed full of a lot of information too, but they're not brisk reads. So, <laughs> Well, you know, I, I kind of consider myself more of a, a, a storyteller and a, uh, a folklorist, I guess, a chronicler of, of folklore. Um, and I don't really consider myself a researcher. I, I kind of consider researchers like a notch above my level um I'm, i basically write the stories so and, and folklore doesn't have to mean it's you know mythology or anything like that it's uh i love the folklore of different cultures and and the stories uh, and find, trying to find out whether or not they're real my next book i'm already, you know, I'm working on my next book mysterious island barbados and i'm going to be spending a month here in february and march doing research a lot of fascinating stuff in, in Barbados. You got pirate stories. You got a, an amazing cave system, buried treasure, a voodoo, um, uh, lots of shipwrecks, things like that. So I want to go there and start getting the same kind of stories in Barbados. Do you guys either? You guys have any stories, a UFO or anything like that about Barbados? Not that I, not that I can think of. But I mean, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, I would. Uh, I think I have more like kind of parapolitical research that I've done on it, but um, I'd have to go back through some of my notes to check. But I'll let you know. Yeah, great. Okay, oh, can, can I can I just say one thing? I'm sorry. Yeah, go. I'm for the it. I'm the king. I'm the king of interruptions today. I apologize. <laughs> so um, I just want to let the listeners know that I'm working on a new uh, TV project, and I'm looking for people that have added experiences. Um, maybe had a close encounter with an entity, possibly what we would call an alien. And I'm looking for people that have some incredible evidence, footage, um, whatever. And I'm talking, you know, I've got millions of submissions of lights in the sky. I'm looking for some really good stuff. Um, you could find me on Facebook. Just search David H. Altman. 
And I'm on Twitter, David H. Altman as well. Thank you. All right. Well, on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all. Come on, baby, pick me up. Out here in my wiki up. Sick and tired of fucking up. Sick and tired of pushing luck. Voodoo blue got juice in it. Swallow what I'm about to spit. Don't got 86 from the copper queen for singing this. I took it to the goat. Jay, my people there, they're feeling me Down low, skin, roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here in my wiki, up Stuck down in the stick, hut is hot as hell I tell you what, put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down, turn around Do it for me, stick it out Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out They're coming with that heat Mama shooting up the street Mama fight or flight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat Mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street Tell me that you good for it You want peace Go to war for it Say one, two, three Geronimo Jump baby we gotta go Screaming with me Scream Geronimo Never getting used to it Got bells of weed and catapults With Santa wet diffused in it Shoot it over the castle wall The Migra can't patrol it off From Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a Genghis Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught a Realized if a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey, best believe They sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Come on, the man ain't getting wealthy With people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ Talking about that BMC We got no economy If we ain't got no enemy The Popo and the BP DHS and Army UAVs, officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just the one thing that ain't too clear. I said people always bitching about the government here. But that war administration's our whole civilization. What?